So when we come to chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians, for maybe those that haven't been here uh, or just to refocus our thoughts, I want us to remember that chapter number 12 through 14, and some would even say chapter 11 through 14, uh, are one set of uh, instructions for the church of Corinth. It's one section. And we're really not left guessing at the framework of, of what Paul is writing about. In chapter 12 and verse number 1, you, if you remember, he says, now concerning the spiritual gifts. And as Adam has already mentioned in going through chapter 12, the original word in the Greek for gifts is not there. It, it's really literally now concerning the spiritual concerning the spiritual things. And this frames the whole structure of our section in 1 Corinthians 12 through 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And just so we understand too, spiritual things, it's not like Paul's been writing about whatever and then he says, oh yeah, by the way, now concerning spiritual things and we're just getting to this in chapter 12. This has been on his heart and mind throughout the letter. If you think back, and and these verses will be on the overheads for you, chapter 2 and verses 12 and 13, we're reminded that what Paul says, that the wisdom he is communicating has been taught by the Spirit as they are interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. These are spiritual truths for spiritual people. The church, as we think of it, is primarily spiritual in nature. A local church is not just a gathering of people that come, that agree about certain facts. The local church is a gathering of people who have been taught the spiritual truths of the gospel by the Holy Spirit. And as a church, we are to be then about spiritual things over and above any earthly thing. Think about the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 2, where he says this, set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. However, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, he tells them in chapter 3 and verse number 1, unfortunately, we, we, we've been hearing Corinth is a mess of a church. It's not a model of a healthy church. He says, I could not address you as spiritual people. I wanted to, but instead I have to address you as people of the flesh, as infants. In other words, you guys are spiritually, you are babies in your spiritual understanding, but you shouldn't be. Now when a person comes to faith in Christ, we, t- we talk about the idea of their, their spiritual growth that happens. They, they are reborn, they are born again, and they're growing as a baby until full maturity. But these people in Corinth, they should have been progressing further than they have. And Paul says, I wish I could address you as spiritual. Then you go to chapter 9 and verse number 11. And Paul once again reminds them that he has been sowing spiritual things among them. This was Paul's desire that, that they would be spiritual people as God has designed them to be. But what was the mindset of the church of Corinth? They wanted to be recognized both within the church and outside of the church, those that we'll be looking at, as they wanted to be recognized as spiritual, as having God's power and God's presence among them. And in their desire to be spiritual, what were they striving after? They were striving after knowledge, status, position, rights, relevance, 
And now, as we come to 12 to 14, they're striving for giftedness. In an effort to be spiritual, they were actually striving for all the earthly things, which was leading to their pride and disunity and the acceptance of sinful living in their midst and lawsuits and jealousy and idolatry and sexual immorality and even the, use, the misuse of the communion table. In chapter 11, Paul wants them to become the spiritual people that God has designed them to be. And listen, God did design and equip the church with everything needed to be the spiritual temple that he talks about in chapter 3. You are to be the spiritual temple of God, indwelled by the Spirit. As you come into chapter number 12, it is the Spirit of God who has empowered each member with gifts for the common good of the church. It's the Spirit of God that unites believers together as one body and all of those members of the body are vital for spiritual health. So at the very end of chapter number 12 and verse 31, you can flip your page back or if it's on the same uh, page there, you'll notice this phrase, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now this phrase can either be taken as a command, like you should be doing this, or it could be taken as a statement. And there's debate on how it should be taken. I I tend to take it as a statement, like you are desiring the higher gifts out of pride, but I will show you a more excellent way. And it's the way of love. Let me tell you about love, and that's chapter 13 that Adam has went through the last three weeks And so we're carrying all of this background into chapter 14 with us. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to in chapter 14 is in verse number 12. With everything I said in your mind, notice what he says. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit. Now once again, we have a word supplied to us by translators, not saying that it's inaccurate, but it's supplied for us. There is no word in the original for manifestations. It is literally, since you are eager for the spiritual. And there's a lot of things going on in this chapter. Questions that you have, questions that I've had. But I would say it all filters through this desire they had for manifestations of the Spirit, or their desire to be spiritual. This was a church that they wanted to feel something. They wanted excitement. They wanted growth. They wanted the outsiders to say, ah, God is really among them. Look at, look at them. And really, are, are we so different today? Do we not make judgments about churches and worship services and ministries based on how they make us feel? Or what emotions those things stir up within us? Do we not want outsiders and others to think, man, that church has it. Whatever it is, they, they got it. They're, they're really doing well. Whatever they've latched onto, like how can we be like them? Because they're growing 
or whatever the case might be. And you have this question that lingers over the church of Corinth and even over our church today. Are these the things that make a church spiritual? This gets to the heart of what I believe Paul is trying to convey to us in this chapter. Notice verse 1 in chapter 14. And once again, here, just like in chapter 12, the word gifts for us is supplied. But he says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual. Here, this is given as a command. Like in light of what I've just said in chapter 13, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. Here's the way of love. Now, with that in mind, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual or the spiritual things. Be zealous for the spiritual. Be devoted to it. You can't make this happen to yourself. You can't exercise these spiritual gifts in your own strength. You can desire it, but it must come from the Spirit. He is the one that is empowering us to live. This spiritual life in spiritual community with one another. So Paul redirects our whole focus not to these things that, 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 that we, should, be, we, we should desire, but we're actually striving after to do them in our flesh. He refocuses our attention to desire these spiritual things, but pursue after love. The church of Jesus Christ is spiritual in nature, and we are to be a spiritual people. And so the question that we're going to look at through this chapter is this, what makes a church spiritual? We're going to do this over the span of three weeks, this week and next week, uh, and then we will be gone, our family will be gone for the, the week following Thanksgiving, and so we'll pick back up the first week of December. But this morning, we're just going to touch on the first of uh, what I see are three things that make a church spiritual that Paul is highlighting in this chapter. First of all, and this is, our, this, is, this is our point for the morning, a spiritual church is an active church. It's interesting to think about our society as it relates to activeness. Some of you are already thinking, well, that's what's wrong in our world today. People, people just don't want to do anything. We've got a bunch of lazy people in our world And yet at the same time, when we ask each other how we're doing, what's the number one answer that we typically give or even hear? Well, I'm I'm doing good, just really busy, really active. So the question then comes, is all activity created equal? And the answer to that is no. Let me give you an example. Consider a, a dad or a husband, dad and a husband, who is very active, they are active in their work, in their vocation. They are active maybe in sports, maybe in watching it, maybe in playing it, maybe in coaching it. They are active with their friends. They're active in their community. They're serving in different ways. They're taking care of their house and their car. And on and on we can go. And the culture would say, that's good. That's a good guy. He's, he's really active in good things. Might even make him feel good to a point. Let's take that same person and and flip the picture around. And then we see at home, 
There is a, a lonely wife, kids who feel neglected, a Bible that collects dust on a shelf. And so at the same time, this man is active in some good things. He's inactive in the things that I I hope we would say matter most. And in 20 years, what's going to matter? How much time he poured into to all of these things that our culture is saying, hey, these are really good, or the things that, that will stick far longer and even outlast his own life. All, I say all that to say all activity is not created equal. And the same thinking applies to the local church. Churches today, we need to get this. We need to get this because our culture is telling us what we should be active in. You should be active in being relevant, keeping up with the styles and the methods of our culture. We should be active on social causes. We should be active for political causes, for numerical growth, for having more and bigger programs. We should be active in all of these things and pursuing them. And like Corinth, it's easy to believe that these are the things that make up true spirituality. But like Corinth, we would be wrong. So what are we to be active in doing? Paul tells us in verse number one, and this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at two words. And and at the risk of, of, of just giving a fourth sermon on love, we're going to focus in on the first two words of chapter 14, pursue love. There are several commands in this chapter, but this command is the overarching command. Everything else filters underneath of this or filters through this. It's the foundation for everything that Paul is going to say. It is the more excellent way. The way to what? The way to true spirituality. And Paul says to pursue it to chase it, to hunt it down. It's the same word for the word persecute, but in a positive sense. Seek after this. Don't let it out of your sight until you've caught it. This is to be your primary activity. And our culture might read this and say, pursue love. That's what we've been saying all this time. But that's what makes the context so important. Because the love that our culture is pursuing isn't the love that's described in chapter 13. Okay, I hope we recognize that. It's not agape love. Um, Mike, drew a blank on your name. A few weeks ago, mentioned that there's a few different words, Greek words, for love. The word used here is the word agape, which is being selfless in our love. It's not the word that our culture typically uses for love, which is uh, the, the Greek word eros, from which we get our word erotic, which is often self-serving. Paul says, I want you to pursue agape, selfless love, just like I described in chapter 13. 
That means I want you to pursue, and if you think of the description that Adam walked through us very detailed and, and helpfully in chapter 13, I want you to pursue patience and kindness. I want you to pursue humility. I want you to pursue proper behavior. I want you to pursue gentleness. I want you to pursue delighting when other people are blessed. I want you to pursue rejoicing in the truth. I want you to pursue seeing the best in others. This is your pursuit. So we don't finish reading chapter 13 and say, hmm, that's really good. Too bad I'm not not like that. And move on. No, now that it's been described for you, pursue it until it becomes your reality. And too often we are passive and, and we wait to wake up one day and maybe we'll roll out of bed and feel, more lo- feel like a more loving person. But here, what is Paul's call? It is something you must actively pursue. There's something we, we need to grasp here. And, and Adam pulled this out over the last couple weeks as well, but I, I want to just feel and understand this, this, this main truth, because if we only think of love as a feeling or an action, we'll find ourselves frustrated and spiritually burned out. Before the pursuit of love can ever be horizontal, like I, I need to be like this to others, it must be vertical. See, love is not just a feeling or an action or a way of life. Love is, first and foremost, a person. The pursuit of love isn't looking at chapter, chapter 13 and saying, well, how can I be better at this? How can, I, how can I get better at doing this love thing? It's understanding that God is love. And so to pursue love is then to do what? To pursue God himself. It is Jesus that is the picture of chapter 13. And I I know Adam brought that out, but I want to re-emphasize this to us once, once again. It's like what Peter said in the song that we sang, Lord, where else can we go? If I can substitute, you are the source of love. If I'm going to pursue this, I must come to you. You will never find true love outside of God. He is the source of it. He is the example of it. He is the definition of it. And we don't need to go very far back in 1 Corinthians to be reminded of the greatest love story ever known. In chapter number 11, and you you can flip back there, because I said we're only really mostly looking at two words in chapter 14 today. This primary command. In chapter 11, instructions are given around the communion table. And what does this table proclaim? That God is love. And here's the story of love. The most glorious of all beings lives from eternity past as one God in three persons in perfect love towards one another. 
God the Father is loving God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. There's already love being displayed, and it's out of that eternal love that God created a perfect world to display and share His love with His creation. A world full of beauty and creativity, a world full of order and wonder, a world that was designed to praise this glorious Creator. He creates humans to live with Him, to rule and reign as His representatives here on earth to care for his creation. Yet in just a short amount of time following creation, man and woman, Adam and Eve, decide to live according to their own rules, to rebel against this glorious creator. And this rebellion put all of creation under a curse. This curse would bring difficulty and pain and suffering, but ultimately this curse would bring death. Now the right and the just thing to do would have been for humanity to just be left to their own demise. For God to just wipe the slate clean and bring judgment to the world. Yet, instead, the glorious creator shows patience and kindness and steps into this mess of a world by taking on human flesh. He demonstrates perfect obedience and perfect love, yet suffers the punishment of the curse. He suffers death, not for his rebellion, but for our rebellion. The story doesn't end there. Three days later, he rises again, and now he reigns as king. And one day, he will return, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth upon which he, we, he will live with his bride, the church. He will live with all those who trust in him. This is a love story. And the closer you zoom in, the the sweeter it gets. You and I are the rebels. We live in rebellion against the glorious creator. We're the idolaters chasing after position and status and knowledge and sexual immorality. And all the while we are thinking that we are spiritual, thinking that because we walk into a church building on a Sunday, we sing a couple songs, we drop money in a box, we, we, whatever the case might be, we don't break any laws during the week, that we are somehow spiritual people. And yet, none of those things can remove the stain of our sin. Have you ever stained a good shirt and you you scrub and scrub and try to get that stain out and it doesn't come out, nothing works? That's what our sin is like. We scrub as hard as we can with, with all of the effort that we have, with all of the good works that we can muster but yet the stain of sin remains and there is only one way for that stain of sin to be removed from our lives. And when God stepped into this world, he had a purpose and he did it all in love. And this is where I want to bring our minds back to chapter 11 and just think about the words written in verses 23 to 25. Many of us know this because we read it oftentimes when we take Partake of the communion meal. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And at many times, that's exactly how we re- I read this. We read it fast, and we know the words. But let's think about what these words are saying. Starting in that second phrase in verse number 23, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, the night Jesus was betrayed, thrown under the bus, sold out for 30 pieces of silver. Yet in that moment, on that night, he takes the bread and the cup and he gives Thanks. How does someone, knowing he has been betrayed, give thanks? And here we have, who is he giving thanks to? He's giving thanks to his Father. So we see the eternal love of God already on display that night that Jesus Christ in love was submissive to his Father and in the midst of betrayal, And all of the feelings that come with that. If you know what it's like to be betrayed, Jesus felt it. And yet he gives thanks. And that eternal love then spills over for us. And he says, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. It's the loving, sacrificial death of Jesus that allows us to have a spiritual relationship with the glorious Creator. Eternal love stepped into the world, brought us salvation. And before we ever pursue love, before we can ever do chapter 14 and verse number 1, recognize that love has pursued us. Love is pursuing us and has brought us to salvation and is now at work in us, building us into the spiritual temple of God and we will one day enjoy eternal loving communion with Him forever. Listen, the Corinthian church was a mess of a church Yet a loving God made them spiritually alive in Christ. We are a mess. Yet a loving God made us spiritually alive in Christ. The love of the cross is not a memorial of the past It is a reality of the present. And friend, this week you have sinned against God, as so have I. And you must come to him for forgiveness. There is no other way to remove that stain of sin. And yet in your moment of sinful betrayal, just like Judas betrayed Christ, we betray him in our moment of sin. Yet Jesus once again thankfully says, This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Church, he is our pursuit. We cannot pursue spirituality without 
pursuing God. And when you fix your mind on him and the loving work that he has done for you, the loving work that he is doing for you, and the loving work that he one day will do for you, when that, when that is your, where your mind is fixed, it will start to change your mind towards others. It will reshape you from the inside out. You will start to live more humble. You will find that the words coming out of your mouth are gracious and loving and patient and kind. And all the things that you, that you and I read for chapter 13 and we say, that's not me. When you pursue him, you will find verses 4 to 7 to be more and more true about you. And please don't mistake this. Paul doesn't say to pursue knowledge. He might say, well, that's pretty obvious. It's not the word he uses. Paul wants us to know this book. He, he wants us to have a knowledge about these things. He's, that'll be the bulk of the sermon Next week, we should be maturing in our knowledge of these things. But the value of the knowledge is in who I know, not in what I know. There are some Christians today that know a lot about the Bible. They can rattle off theology. They'd win every game in Bible trivia and tell you like the cave that David hid in when he was running from Saul. But there's something they are missing, and it's love. They are no more spiritual than a person who never darkens the door on a Sunday. You might say, well, Dennis, that seems a little extreme, don't you think? But what does Paul say at the beginning of chapter 13? He says, you could speak in the tongues of men and of angels. You could have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith. And you could give away everything you have. But if you don't have love, you are nothing. You gain nothing. You are like a noisy gong. That is, you are actually a detriment to the spiritual health of a church. The greatest of pursuits for a church is love is God. We don't know, need to know more about love. We need to know love. We need to know Him. The Corinthian church was active. They were busy. Even they were busy in some good things, but their pursuit was first fixed on giftedness, is what we're talking about here. And you could go back through the chapters and see the other things that they were focused on. And it, and it was secondly on Christ, which was leading to all the problems that they were experiencing. Do you see why we must cling to what truly matters? A spiritual church is active in the things that matter, specifically and chiefly pursuing love. I mentioned earlier that love is first vertical before it can ever be horizontal. But it must be both. There is no way you can pursue the love of God and pursue God himself, be captivated by his love, and then that love not spill over into our relationships. If we, if we truly capture the, the heart and love of God in our vertical relationship, it will spill over 
horizontally. And I want to spend the rest of our time focusing on the command that is given at the end of verse number 12. So basically, we're, we're looking at two bookends, chapter 14, verses 1, bookend in verse number 12, some two primary commands in the heart of this chapter. The command given at the end of chapter 12 is only possible with love. He says, strive to excel in building up the church. What's interesting, in chapter 8 and verse number 1, Paul actually connects these two, these two ideas together when he says, love builds up. So in other words, if you pursue love, you will build up. But at the same time, Paul is drawing attention to this command. Our focus should be building up the church. So this love is both vertical and horizontal. Let this be your endeavor toward each other. Go over and above in building up the spiritual structure of the church. Our love can often be shallow. We see, love within the church must extend beyond the physical to the spiritual. Any community can help one another. But only the church can build up spiritually. Because the church is a spiritual people. We are spiritual people. And we need to go deeper than we often do in our, in our loving of one another. I mean, this strikes really to the heart of what church membership is all about. Church membership is simply, I want to pursue God with all of my being. And I want to help others to do that. And I want others to help me do that. I'm all in. But love that builds up spiritually, it takes time and it gets intimate. So now, now my mind during the week is thinking, you know what, let me send that spiritually encouraging text or make that spiritually encouraging phone call to someone in the congregation. Or man, I know it's not convenient all the time, but I need to be connecting spiritually with my brothers and sisters in Christ during the week, so I'm going to join a small group. I'm going to find time to get together one-on-one with someone else for spiritual growth. Man, I'm, I came in this morning. I'm here to worship, but I'm also here to encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ. So let me talk to them about spiritual things. Let me pray with them as we gather together. Love might look like handing someone a cup of coffee or a bulletin on a Sunday morning or serving in the nursery or getting the sound working properly or preaching a sermon, but it's going to be more than that. It's serving coffee and and not getting irritated at the kid that just spilled hot chocolate all over the floor. It's watching children with with your heart desire that the parents will be spiritually blessed as they worship undistracted. It's greeting a person at the door and recognizing that, man, they seem seem disheveled today. Let me me not just say, hi, how you doing? Welcome. Let me stop and, hey, can can I pray with you? 
It's bearing spiritual burdens and sin struggles alongside of others for weeks or maybe even months. It's preaching a sermon in humility and speaking in a way that that puts your, your focus on Christ and not on myself. You want to be spiritual, essentially is what Paul's saying. Well, it's not about how gifted you are or the role that you play in the body. It's about how active you are in pursuing love. And sometimes to actively pursue love, to actively pursue God, we'll need to stop pursuing something else. So I ask our church this question, is the greatest desire of our church for each of us to be in pursuit of love or are we simply concerned that we have the right ministries and the right programs, we end our service on time, whatever the case might be. If this is our mindset, we we are on the same track as the church of Corinth and we're going to find that there's bitterness and anger and jealousy and pride and all these things creeping up in our midst. But when, the pursuit of, when our pursuit is love, there, there will most likely be different ministries and programs and, and all of the rest, but they will be the outflow of our love and they will be functioning in a way that is building up the church to spiritual health. We must be active in our pursuit of love in such a way that we are actively engaging our minds and each other's minds with the gospel because it's out of this that our ministry flows. Someone recently asked me, well, how how do we know what our spiritual gift is? Had that question. But after studying this chapter more in depth than I, than I ever have. I don't, I don't think that's the question that we need to ask. We, we, we want to be used. We want to, to see the value that we bring to the body. We want to make a difference. We want to do something, maybe we want big for God. We want a particular giftedness. But what does Paul say in verse number 12? Since you are eager for the spiritual... Like this is what you, you want to experience spirituality. Strive then to excel in building up the church, which happens as you pursue love. In other words, make that your aim. Make that your pursuit. And you will find that the Spirit will give you the right gift at the right time for the right person for the good of all. You will find yourself growing spiritually and we will find ourselves as a church growing as a spiritual church. See, a spiritual church is an active church, active in the pursuit of love, first vertically and then horizontally. 